I think there's a couple things, and I really like to think of FP&A in three areas. Then the third thing you can do, which really can help you reach that next level, is bring in the right technology. The Excel World Championship, it will be on ESPN. Joining us today is Paul Barnhurst, the founder of the FP&A Guide. So, Paul, if you could give us a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So, name is Paul Barnhurst. I uh, spent most of my career in FP&A, so financial planning and analysis with large companies, American Express, Solera, and others. Today, I run my own business called the FP&A Guy, and that consists of coaching. We've worked with a number of uh, companies doing training, different things like that. I do a little bit of consulting, and then also I run a couple podcasts. And you know, provide advice daily or nearly every day on LinkedIn to FPNA professionals around the globe. Appreciate that insight. Thank you very much. What's one mistake that you see private equity firms or portfolio companies making? And what actions would you suggest to correct them? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one thing I've seen, you know, in my private equity experience is at times there's been too much of a short-term and cost focus. You know, many private equity have that horizon they want to get out in five to seven years. But I've seen that experience where they're so focused on that, they've cost to the extent where the business is starting to really struggle and buyers sometimes see that. So I think it's really important to make sure you find that healthy balance between both revenue generation and cost cutting. You can only do so much and the next buyer, you know, private you're always looking to get out, that next buyer is going to notice if almost all your benefit is coming from cost cutting because it will be difficult for them to see how do I add value to this business? I got to first add cost and try to grow and you want a premium. And so I think it's really important to keep in perspective that balance and think beyond just when you're going to you know, sell the company. What is it going to look like in 10 years, not just three years or five years? Perfect. And if we look at companies called the FP&A guy, what three things should companies be doing to improve their FP&A process? based on your experience of working within firms, but also now consulting with them? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple things. And I really like to think of FP&A in three areas. So first, it's people. And I think the first thing you need to do is make sure you have the right people and you're upskilling them. With everything that's coming in AI and technology, you need people that can do deeper analysis, that knows how to be more productive with AI and that can tell that story. So I think the first thing is really focusing on making sure, do I have people that meet today's needs that can be commercial and help drive the business forward? I think the second thing that FP&A teams need to really think about is their processes. Are you constantly streamlining and automating? I've been in situations and we've all been there where, hey, why do we do it this way? Because that's the way we've always done it. You know, it just doesn't cut it in a world where FP&A is being asked to do more and more. Data is constantly increasing and the demands. And I think once you get, you know, you have those right people and you have a process for upskilling and training them, you really focus on creating a culture of process improvement and automation. Then the third thing you can do, which really can help you reach that next level is bring in the right technology because technology serves as an enabler. If you start with technology, you're almost always going to end up with a failed transformation. You need to think about all the other stuff, and then use technology to enable and free up your team to focus on being good business partners with the business. So, looking at technology, and technology is a bit of a, uh, a bit of a demon in itself because <laughs> everyone's got the best technology. There's new software coming out every week. Yep. 
And, you know, we shouldn't try, we can go tried and tested, we go new, um, you know, it doesn't always, you know, fit what we, what we want. And sometimes we don't know what we want. So what can companies do? What can private equity firms, what can portfolio companies do to kind of improve their decision-making around, if we focus around FP&A technology and support there, what are some of the considerations they need to be taking in on board? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think there are a couple things, you know, right. Most transformations fail. And so first you need to think about strategically why you're doing this, you know, make sure you communicate and you start small. But then there's the second part of how do you find the right technology? When should you do it? And I think there are a couple things, right? Most companies, pretty much everybody starts on a spreadsheet. It's how you plan, right? It's how I do it for my business today. And so you need to figure out when do I need to upgrade? When does the spreadsheet no longer make sense? And there's usually some good warning signs. If you're uh, you're having a really hard time making changes to a model and your CEO's always being told, hey, you're going to have to wait to get an answer. Two, if you're dealing with a bunch of workbook links, things are breaking all the time, it's really hard to collaborate. Those are all signs that you probably want to look at technology. But from there, you know, it really comes down to doing your due diligence because there's never a right tool, right? There's not one technology that's going to solve your problems. There's usually many technologies that will work. And so it's then understanding, okay, what am I going to look like in three to five years? What's important to me? You know, is it the reporting that comes from this? Is it the planning piece? Is it, you know, business intelligence? Is it a low learning curve? Like, do I want to stay in basically a spreadsheet and just get some of the benefits that come from a planning tool? And so that helps you narrow down, you know, where to focus is by having that real understanding of what are those important things to you? What are things you can live with, live without? Because, right, every vendor is going to give you this presentation of, oh, we got all these cool things. Wow. And Sometimes you get caught up in that and you buy something and later you realize, okay, 90% of what they have is not what I need, but it looked cool. And so you really got to have that fundamental understanding of what do I need? What does good for my business look like? And then, you know, narrow down those choices. So you make sure you get something that's going to be beneficial to you, not something that looked cool in a demo. So when you've decided what you want and then you go to market to find that, how how do people... How do firms, how do companies, how do they decide, how do they shortlist FPNA planning technology? Where do they go to look? Is there anywhere websites for comparisons? Yeah, so places you would it's a great question. I think 90% of people go to others they know or tools they've used in the past, which really limits what's out there. So I have a spreadsheet today with over 140 tools listed on it. This market has seen explosion. Now the way I like to tell people, and I've done a little bit of this work, and some of it's on my website, and then I'll talk about some other resources, is I like to segment, okay, which are those focused on small, kind of medium, large companies? And then on another scale, I look at, okay, am I looking for a tool that's highly integrated with spreadsheets, a spreadsheet replacement, you know, kind of on that scale? Because some people want to completely move away from spreadsheets. Some people want it to really be a spreadsheet tool. And a lot of people can relate to that because everybody understands a spreadsheet. So that's one way I've tried to kind of segment the market to help people. But there are a lot of reviews out there. And I'll mention a few, you know, Gartner for the larger tools. If you're a larger company does a good job. You know, they cover a lot of the traditional players. Um, Forrester. There's another company out of Europe called Bark that does some really good analysis. I've also written a market guide. On the newer tools, the ones typically not covered by Gartner and Forrester, more focused on the small market. 
So, you know, and when I say small, small to medium, you know, some of them may be doing a hundred million in revenue. Some may be focused on companies that are in that, you know, 250 less employees type of thing versus some of these older tools that are focused on the American Expresses, right? The big, huge multinational companies. And so I think looking at those is a good place to start as well as talking to people. You know, if you have a CFO you trust or some head of FP&A, ask them what tool they're using and how they like it. Because most implementations are transformations really fail. Most people end up going back to a spreadsheet for some level of their planning. Like I was on a call the other day and I won't mention the tool, but like, oh yeah, we have a tool, but we don't like it. We just use it to load our data and that's it. And so I like to call it often a planning tool. If you're not really careful, what it becomes is an expensive data repository slash, you know, paperweight, so to speak, versus a really a tool that can help improve your processes and drive efficiency. So you mentioned that, you know, head of FP&A, and that's becoming more common in both private equity firms to assess the portfolio sitting at private equity level, but also within the portfolio companies um, to report into the chief financial officer, uh, supporting that process of, of looking at the financials in more detail. What are some of the areas within FP&A that you think, well, classic, chasing EBITDA, reviewing those details, going you know granular on that. But what are some of the areas that you think that FP&A professionals and CFOs should be looking at more that's maybe, maybe disregarded because of the focus around an EBITDA element within FP&A? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing to always keep in mind, yes, EBITDA is always important, but you can't cut your way to growth. So you need to take a holistic approach of looking at the P&L. I think an area that is often under uh, looked at in a company as a whole that I think finance and FP&A in particular can help facilitate those discussions is pricing. And I'll give an example. One a guy who's really big in SaaS did a study where he found the average company spent more time on their janitorial services in a year than they did on their pricing. You just look out at the market, you set it, and you don't worry about it. But the reality is, you know, if you're selling on value and you're thinking strategically, you should be reviewing that regularly. And that's something where finance can really help run the numbers, help you understand the margins, you know, what the impact will be and help facilitate those discussions with sales and marketing and whoever it may be to raise prices. Because studies have shown that the impact of raising prices is usually much less than the CEO predicts it will be. You know, they always say, oh, we'll lose 30% of our business. In reality, you'll lose five, but you increase margins by 10%. So I think it's important to look at pricing, not to say we should be gouging our customers and everybody should, you know, seek some unrealistic price, but often we have pricing that doesn't reflect the value you're providing the customer. Like I worked for a company that was private equity and our CEO at the time had this uh, method he called four to one, eight to one. And we had to look at every deal and if we were providing Less than $4 of value for every $1 we cost, we would try to increase price. If they were getting more than $8, I mean, we'd not increase price, but increase the product to give more value. If it was greater than 8 then we tried to increase the price because he wanted to keep that kind of range for the value. And not saying it should be that strict, but that method really helped us think about what's the value, does our pricing make sense? It's interesting, certainly very interesting on the... Uh, on the process of pricing. And there's something I think a lot of companies don't look at 
what I tend to hear from turnaround type organizations and distressed businesses is there's a huge focus on a lot of these metrics and drilling into that detail. But when it comes to a growth organization, uh, again, it kind of comes to top line metrics and and the remainders is a little bit forgotten about. Agreed. And, and so that's why I think one area, I mean, there's others, but I think pricing is one that is often just overlooked. So I know that you've got uh, multiple podcasts, one of which is the F&P Today podcast. And also you've just started up a new uh, business for planning communities, for corporate and financial planning professionals uh, to network as well. What led you to to setting up the podcast? And, and secondly, what led you to setting up the community? Yeah. So when I started my business, I wanted to do a podcast. And you know, a company had reached out to me about potentially hosting it. And so it worked out perfect. I was just starting my business. I, you know, they agreed to a hosting arrangement where, you know, they'd basically be the sponsor. And so we started it. I've always enjoyed talking to people. I thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk to some of the best and brightest minds globally. And as I did it, I found I loved it. I remember first episode I got done and I'm like, that was so much fun. I love doing that. I was terrible the first episode, but I really enjoyed it. And so, you know, that led to starting a second podcast about financial modeling because I really just enjoyed talking to people and thought, hey, what's another area I could cover that wouldn't, that would complement the first podcast. And then, you know, recently as I look out there, you know, I feel like there are a ton of communities. You, If you're a CFO, it's easy to find a community. If you're in finance, if you're in sales operations, but there's never really been a community for planning people out there where you can go and get best practice. One of the biggest things I always hear from FP&A people is I wish I knew how other firms did it. Because FP&A can be so different from company to company. Sometimes you have sales commissions. Sometimes you have revenue operation stuff. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're planning quarterly, monthly, weekly. Just so many things are different. And you get the boss asking, well, what's best practice? I have no idea. And you may not know anyone to talk to. And so that's one of the reasons we put together a planning community so people could have those conversations and find others that they could discuss those things with in a place that, you know, would help them grow and learn. Perfect. Sounds, yeah, I find myself as a, you know, running and, and founding a business. It's, it's a bit of a lonely place at times. And I, th- I know that's over term overused, but certainly having networks of people around you to bounce things off and just speed decision-making is certainly invaluable. What are your influences? You're obviously a podcaster yourself, but what do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to that you recommend that others check out? Yeah, I know that, that's a great, great question. You know, I don't, outside of work, I don't get a lot of time to uh, do the reading and other things with family. A lot of time is spent with different activities with uh, with my daughters, but a few things I really enjoy. I love always upskilling myself in Excel. I'm an Excel nerd. Like one of the things I'm actually going to this weekend and next weekend are the one is the college world championship for Excel. I'm going to be interviewing some of the candidates. And then the next weekend I'm going to Vegas. It's being held in a HyperX gaming arena, the Excel world championship. It will be on ESPN. So that's one I've been getting into lately and I'm hoping to compete some next year with no, uh, no illusions of grandeur. I did it once this last year and I got annihilated, but it helps me get better. And I like learning Excel. So that's one thing, you know, then beyond that, I enjoy reading from time to time, you know, different business books. Right now I'm reading one called Effective Data Storytelling. But when it comes to outside of work, I often either family or reading fiction. So uh, I think everyone will be asking the same question. I've never heard of the Excel world champion. You're not the only one. Everybody asks when I- What on earth 
you have to do, I mean, I'm, I can do the old equal sum formula. That's kind of the extenu, extenuation of my uh, capabilities. But what on earth do you have to do to become the world champion at Excel? So I interviewed him. So actually, if you if you go to my podcast, the guy's name is Dermot Early. He's a two-time world champion. Some people refer to him as the Michael Jordan of financial modeling, which is just funny to me. But a hell of a so listening to that episode, <laughs> you'll get an idea. But how it works, I'll explain a little bit of how a competition works. I think most people are in you know, find it interesting. So typically you have 30 minutes to solve a case. The case has some visual, so it can be presented on a screen. People could actually watch it, see your keystrokes. And what you're doing, you're starting with a very easy. So it could be something as simple as picture a map with a bunch of trees and a road in the middle. And the first question would be, tell me how many different kind of trees there are. So how many pine trees are there? How many oak? And they've given you that legend. And so simple count if you figure it out. Next, Okay, now tell me how far each tree is from the road. And so now you got to think of, okay, how do I do that? The road runs different ways and it can't be diagonal coming with the formula. Next step may be, okay, tell me what profit you'd get by cutting all the pine trees. So now you got to figure out the distance to get there. You got to figure out how much it costs, what the price is. And it just gets more and more difficult at each level where often optimization cases to, okay, you can't cut the same tree twice every day of the month at this price, how much profit would you or would you earn? Would you cut all the trees or not? And if not, how many wouldn't you cut? Because it's not you know cost effective. So you, you're starting to run all kinds of formulas and optimizations. And the guys who do it, the best in the world, typically tend to come from computer science or mathematics because they're programmers. You know, they're bringing that logic and writing basically code in Excel. It won't be something I'll be entering. I would be absolutely no good at that, Paul, but I do wish all the- uh, <laughs> Oh, I, I'm i not good at it, but it makes me a lot better at Excel. And well, I it. found it fun. I did it once. And like I said, I was last place for, I think, 29 of the 30 minutes. At the very beginning, I was in second for about 30 seconds. Then I dropped <laughs> to the end and stayed there. Fair enough. Well, I'd be fair better on the on the next occasion. Um so, Paul, if anybody wishes to to reach out to you, how best do they get in touch, please? Yeah, the best way to reach out to me, you can uh, find me on LinkedIn. Or my website, uh, thefpnaguy.com. Those are probably the easiest and best two ways to reach out to me. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Paul. Really appreciate your insight. Uh, FPNA is certainly an area that's obviously a big part of private equity, but continues to be more of an individual uh, performance rather than just sitting mm-hmm. completely with the CFO. So thank you very much for giving us everything you have done today and giving us uh, some action to uh, to implement to improve our FPNA processes. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Alex. Enjoyed being on the show and enjoy what you're doing for the private equity space. Appreciate that. So, and as always, thank you very much for everybody who's uh, tuned in today to listen to the private equity podcast uh, with Raw Selection. Should you ever need private equity professional hiring or portfolio executive appointments across Europe and North America, then please do reach out to us at Raw Selection. If you've not already done so, the podcast now comes out every week. So please do subscribe and you'll be notified of next week's podcast. But till the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening.